0: Is going on, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of American Stippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. My name is Dave Brown. Today is Monday Rewind. And if you don't know what Monday Rewind is, it's where we go back and kind of bring back to life one of our older podcast episodes and guest interviews and bring them here, uh, culminate them here in a summary. On Mondays, these are 15, 20-minute episodes. Uh, all of our guests have incredible stories. They bring a lot of value, insight, and lessons to the table. And we share those with you here on Monday Rewind. Uh, today, we are sitting down and talking with uh, Ephraim Mattis, we interviewed him back uh, in 2018, that was episode number 71. Uh, And actually Friday, which we do op-ed Fridays, uh, we cover current events, um, the most ridiculous news stories of of the week and some positive and good news stories as well. Uh, Friday's episode is actually episode number 200 for us. So super exciting. Make sure you tune in uh, on Fridays as well. Op-ed Fridays are a lot of fun. We always have a guest that comes in and and shares their thoughts on current events as well. So make sure you tune in this Friday for Op-ed Friday. And then uh, again, today is Monday Mashup, and we are here with uh, Ephraim Mattis. Uh, Ephraim is a former Navy SEAL uh, who now dedicates himself to humanitarian work. His book, City of Death, Humanitarian Warriors in the Battle of Mosul, is a riveting and in-depth journey into some of the world's most dangerous humanitarian missions. He joined the Free Burma Rangers on a mission which was partially captured on film, and one camera was rolling when Ephraim was actually shot during a rescue, and that video went viral. Uh, Ephraim used that platform and, and that notoriety, so to speak, to gain support for his mission of helping people who most need help in places most people won't go. His organization, Stronghold Rescue and Relief, uh, whose mission is to send highly trained former special operations warriors into the heart of the storm to find and assist families in need. Uh, we actually, again, interviewed Ephraim back in 2018. His story is still powerful, and his message about rising above hate is even more relevant today than it was then. In this episode, we share some of Ephraim's intense stories as well as his messages about the reality behind post-traumatic post traumatic stress in our veterans and the power of loving those beside you more than you hate those against you. Great lesson for today. So without further ado, here's Barbara Allen with Ephraim Mattis. You're listening to the American Snippets podcast.
1: In this book, you talk about growing up in Milwaukee in a Mm middle-class family, and you were in a devout Baptist family. I grew up in a devout Catholic family with strict regulations and rules and policies. And so I really identified with a lot of stuff what you talk about here in terms of their traditions and protocols and practices. Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of that faith that you were raised in and how it Mm -hmm. impacted you and carried you further?
2: Absolutely. So first and foremost, um, I think the morals and values that were instilled in me as a child, i'm I'm extremely grateful for all of that. so I have to make that abundantly clear because yeah. uh, I don't want I don't want people to think that um, you know that I hate religion or hate God or anything like that. no I'm actually I'm, I' I'm actually very grateful for how I grew up. It was a bit strange, um, and I chose to go another route. but so growing up, you know we were independent fundamental Baptist, um, which which basically just means that you, Uh, You follow sort of the old traditional rules. Girls can't wear pants. Um, You can't go to movie theaters, things like that. And I talk about it in the book City of Death about 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 a few of those things. You couldn't listen to music with like drum beats in it because that was considered, you know, having sort of like a satanic influence. Mm -hmm. And again, a bit strange, but very well meaning. And these were really, really good people. But right around the age of 15 or 16, um, I started to question things. um, And I talk about it in the book where I had a conversation with a, with a teacher at the small Christian school that I was going to. And, uh, that sort of opened my eyes to the idea that, you know, Hey, you can, you can still want to do the right thing in life. And that doesn't mean that you have to follow all these different, you know, rules Mm -hmm. and, and regulations and things like that. And so that gave me also the opportunity that I could do whatever I wanted to do in life. And that was something I didn't realize growing up. And so when I, when I had that realization, um, I, my, 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 heart and my soul, what I was passionate about was I legitimately just wanted to help people. And that was something that was instilled in me as, as a kid. And so I wanted to help people. And so I figured the best way I could do that was I wanted to go join the military and, uh, go, go be a seal. That's what I, that's what I set out to do.
1: You, you know, did your time in the seals, you served honorably, but that wasn't what you felt called to do specifically. For the rest well, of my
2: life. I felt I, I wanted to. The reason I joined the military to help people was, you know, I could I could have joined the Peace Corps. I could have, right. You know, done other things, but I was like, I wanted to help people in in combat zones. I want to go to war and I want to help people that nobody else can help. I want to be on the front line, going into places where other people can't go and to do things that other people can't do. And so, as a SEAL, that was that was the perfect fit for me in yeah. in one aspect. But on the other aspect, it wasn't. Um, you, you have to train so much as a seal to maintain that high level, um, that high level of, of operational capability that sometimes it's like, it turns into, you know, being 90% training, you know, 5% waiting and then 5% actually doing your job. And so for me, that, that ratio just wasn't enough. And I was looking at, um, I was looking at all the different conflicts and things that were going on around the world. And I thought, well, I can, I can go help these people you know, our country's going to be okay. We've got plenty of guys holding the line and we absolutely need them. And I, you know, the guys that are still in and they're, and they're still doing what needs to be done to protect our country. And that's fantastic. I just saw other conflicts going on and I thought, you know, I'm just one guy, but I can, I can make a huge difference over there if I just, if I just go over there, you know, and that was, that was my mindset. And so then when I left the, when I left the military last year, early last year, I, uh, I met up with these guys called the Free Burma Rangers and flew out to Iraq to uh, what to do what I thought was going to be humanitarian work, but just in a war zone. I thought, right. okay, well, I can carry a weapon and I can, you know, uh, keep people safe and you know, sort of navigate a war zone um, a little bit better maybe than a civilian could. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll go do that. But then it obviously, as you know, in the book, it yeah, things just went completely haywire.
1: Yeah, unbelievable. So can you tell us a little bit, like for me, and I imagine for a lot of people who are going to be listening your book and your story was my first introduction to the Free Burma Rangers. It's there, mm-hmm. it is, to me, it is just crazy that people like you all are out there doing this. And I'm going to – I mean, there's got to be like such a small percentage of Americans even know that you exist or, or mm-hmm. what you do. And I know it's not like for accolades or medals or all that because you sure as hell like, wouldn't be doing volunteer work if that's what you're no. for. but <laughs> But I think it's so important for people to know that you all exist and the work that you do for for so many reasons. Maybe people can get behind and support it in some way, fashion, send supplies, support, whatever it is. Or maybe there's somebody out there who decides that. They're gonna look into this and be the path for them. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about the free, free Burma Rangers and what? Yes, they Yes,
2: absolutely. Um, so so first and foremost, I do not, I'm not an official representative of of FBR. this right. is just my opinion from my from my small amount of time that I spent with them. So
1: okay,
2: uh, FBR, Free Burma Rangers were obviously founded in Burma by David Eubank, a former uh, special Forces officer and Ranger. and they've been helping the people inside Burma, uh, the, the the civil war that's been going on there in Burma, otherwise known as Myanmar. Um, They've been helping there for like the last 25 years and doing mostly medical things and getting, um, you know, getting relief teams into these sort of remote areas where the people are being are constantly under attack by their own government. And over the last since since the emergence of ISIS, they were invited to come over and help out with doing some medical stuff in in northern Iraq with the Kurdish with the Kurdish forces. And when they got over there, they ended up just kind of getting involved in more and more and more things. And again, ultimately, it's a, it's a humanitarian organization. It's a humanitarian thing, but it's just the kind of organization where guys are not afraid to be armed and it attracts a lot of the sort of ex-military types. Um, so mm-hmm. when I flew over there, for example, you know, I, I volunteered. None of us are paid. We all had to fly and you know, pay, pay our own way over there. I didn't get a plane ticket. Uh, I had to buy my own gear. Uh, but they provide <laughs> David always says, like, I'll provide you um, I'll provide you food and maybe shelter. And that's, that's I've pretty read much that. what you get. And yeah. I wrote
1: that down. I'm like, Well <laughs> with an offer like that. I mean, how can you refuse? How they, can like... you refuse?
2: And <laughs> <Well, laughs> the gun. Actually...
1: Maybe some days you'll have a gun or something. Right? Yeah, maybe <laughs> some
2: days. Yeah, like when I yeah. before I showed up, they're like, I can't guarantee you'll have a gun. And if you have a gun, <laughs> I can't guarantee it's gonna work. Like that was literally the deal. Yeah. Uh, before flying out. But that's actually really good though, because mm-hmm. what makes Free Freebummer Rangers so unique is that it's it's a group of guys. And girls who who truly believe in what they're doing, and are willing to sacrifice of their own yeah. you know of their own money, their own time, uh, to to go and do these things. And so that's why, when when you're in these situations, if you're only there for the money, guess what? When the bullets start flying, you're gonna take cover, and you're yeah. not gonna go help whoever needs to be helped. But right. if you're there, you're already fully committed.
1: Yeah. You
2: know, you're able to do some more extraordinary things.
1: Yeah, you're and, all in how you talk about the people of Iraq is also mm-hmm. so important because I can remember even when all of this broke out. So my husband was in Iraq. My husband was killed in Iraq um, serving with the military. And I can remember, you know, hearing people back when this all started, you know what, just nuke the whole fucking country. They're all, they're all evil. Like just nuke the country. And it, it's such a casually offered joke and comment, yeah. like, you know, that whole country is infested with this, that whole country is this, and just mm-hmm. you know, get rid of them all, right? And so that mm-hmm. is another reason why I think stories like yours are so important. Mm-hmm. Because it is so easy for us to get so frustrated at what is going on and why do our men and women keep going over there? Why are our research why, like, why are our families being obliterate, you know, for this other culture? You know, mm-hmm. so it's so easy to just you know, write that blank check and just lump them all in the same category. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about some of the things about the Iraqi people? You have so many instances in this book. Mm -hmm. We're not going to go through them all. But can you you pick one of those instances or maybe a different one that pops to your mind and just share a story about uh, a couple moments you had with the Iraqi people that kind of stand out in your head that you would like people in this country to know?
2: Wow. Well, yeah. Like you said, <laughs> there's so many stories. Yeah. I think, I think one of the um, one of the biggest stories that that for me that for me comes to mind. And this is a, this is about a uh, you know a, an Iraqi soldier, right? And as you know, like soldiers, they're no they're no different than anybody else. They just they want to go home and have their family and mm-hmm. you know live a peaceful life. And you know it was it was cool. We had this one guy, um, and I talk about it in the book toward the end. A guy named Zuhair, yeah. and uh, he was an Iraqi soldier who continued to push forward and try and rescue people when the rest of the army was just kind of like hanging back, you know, kind of taking their tea breaks and just, they they fight wars very differently than we do. But this guy would always go up and he would always go forward and he would try to rescue people who everyone else had basically written off for dead. And the morning that we got up and did that rescue, he was out there literally crawling out to people on his belly, you know, because otherwise the snipers will shoot him. Um, and it was in the same area where I ended up getting shot and he was, he was, he was crawling out there to rescue wounded people. And some of the guys who he rescued, this is, and this is what's telling some of the guys he rescued were ISIS defectors. And he knew that before he went out there to get these people. And that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. You know, right now in in our country, you know, with the, the political divide right now, we Mm -hmm. can't, we can't get along for anything. We have so much in common. That's a soldier going out there literally risking his life to save the enemy. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. And that's the true face of humanity. That's the true face of 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 humanity that you're going to find everywhere. Yes, there are problems in Iraq. Yes, there are issues in these in a lot of these Middle Eastern countries. Oh, my goodness. There's they're major problems. Yes. But at the end of the day, like they're still human and they're still willing to go out there and risk their life to save the life of one of their enemies who's, who's, who's given up the fight. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing.
1: Yeah, it really, really is. That struck me too. You talk a lot about forgiveness in, in your story too, and how Mm -hmm. you were able to, so there's, yeah, there's so much, but since you just mentioned it, I want to talk about that video. Um, Mm -hmm. so there is a YouTube video now out there that's gone viral. Um, mm-hmm. and it is, I, I don't, I can't imagine what it must feel like for you to watch this and for your family to watch this. I mean, mm-hmm. cause it's a video of you actually being shot, um, mm-hmm. on a mission. So can you tell us, you know, who, what were the circumstances of that event and who shot that video and, and what is it like to have that out there? I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know how yeah, I would feel a, about having that thing. out there. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's definitely a bizarre thing. So, um, Basically, what happened was the morning of June 2nd, 2017, um, We, uh, our, our small, the, the small frontline team of FBR guys, we went down and we saw Zuhair, the Iraqi soldier I talked about before, yeah. we went down and helped him move some of these ISIS defectors who were wounded uh, into an ambulance and, and evacuate them. And when we got up there, we were at, we were at the very front of the Iraqi army frontline. We were in front of the frontline. And we came across about a four or five lane, maybe six lane highway. Uh, that was completely rubbled and destroyed. And we saw saw a couple of bodies, and then we started looking a little bit more, and we realized that there were, at the time we thought there were maybe 60 or 70 bodies in the street, but in reality later on we discovered there were more than 150 uh, people slaughtered in the street. And the bodies, not to be morbid, but the bodies were fresh. They weren't bloated, they weren't stinking yet. And and basically we found out that uh, ISIS had massacred these people, um, about 24 hours prior Wow. and piles of bodies on, you know, people just laying on top of each other, dead, people's heads blown off the whole, the, the most, and again, I'm not trying to be more, but no, I'm trying to describe yeah. what we saw. It was yeah, yeah. absolutely awful. Yeah. And you know, the people who were like in these piles of bodies, it wasn't because ISIS had piled them up on top of each other. It's because they were all running and they all were just dying at the same time and just wow. falling on each other. Anyway, in, in one of these piles of bodies, um, we saw three children still alive and two men still alive, and they're maybe a hundred yards away from ISIS headquarters. And ISIS owns the high ground on two sides of where they're at, so they own the flank and they can see down and see these people. And they were they just left them. They just left them to die. There's kids up the kids wow. would get up and they'd walk around and they they look they'd search the bodies for food and water, and then they'd sit down. And so we're watching this and of course, I, I you, you, grow up in history class and, and, and you, and you look at all these black and white photos of Nazi massacres or maybe something about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, you know, and you think, oh, I'll never see something like that. That that's history that used to happen. That doesn't happen anymore. And I, I remember when I saw this, all I could see was the black and white photos of you know, all these massacres that I'd seen photos of, you know, during history class. And we knew we had to do something. We knew we had to go in there and we had to get these kids out. There was no, there was no like, ah, like maybe we're not going to go. There was, we were going to go.
1: Yeah.
2: And long story short, what ended up happening was um, the American military actually put a drone overhead, saw what was happening and agreed to give us a smoke screen from an artillery unit stationed several miles away. And so this artillery unit started firing um, um, white phosphorus um, rounds that would basically explode in air. And then they send a bunch of balls of fire into the street, creates a big cloud of smoke. And so they they started firing these artillery shells to to sort of blind ISIS. And then the Iraqis gave us one tank uh, for us to run behind. And there were five of us who went out there behind the tank. It was David Eubank. Sky Barkley, a former Marine, uh, our Assyrian interpreter uh, named Mahmoud, and then a guy from Burma uh, who was there. He was the one filming. uh, He was there to document human rights abuses and stuff. And uh, his name, we call him Monkey. Uh, He's from Burma. And I was uh, was the fifth guy. And we got out behind this tank, and it drove out into the highway. And the rest of us sort of used the tank as cover. But immediately, immediately uh, ISIS opened fire on us with machine guns and mortars. So the machine gun rounds, they, they can't quite see us, but they know that we're there somewhere. Yeah. So they're just spraying these, they're just spraying machine gun rounds through the through the smoke. And you know, bullets are just ra- you know, impacting at random. And we're, you know, right next to the bodies of all these other people who've just been shot by ISIS. And we have to, you know, we're like running around their bodies trying to get down the street. So the the mm-hmm. uh, the, the Iraqi army tank takes off and drives straight toward ISIS position, straight toward ISIS headquarters. And we charged down the street falling right behind him. And I was terrified. I talk about this in the book, City of Death. I was absolutely terrified. I I was literally on the border of going into shock because you're literally charging down a machine gun nest. There's dead people everywhere. You're watching the bullets smack into the ground around you and there's nothing you can do. And then on top of that, they're also dropping mortars behind the tank. And so, you know, I, I watched one, I just watched one blow up like right behind us. None of that was caught on video, but. I watched this mortar blow up right behind us. I'm like, this tank doesn't even pro- provide us cover. Right. Anyway, we get down there. And um, by the time we got there in the afternoon, three of the four kids that we had seen alive had died uh, from the heat. Uh, they'd basically um, yeah, suffocated from the heat. Wow. And um, when we got down there, one girl had, had was alive because she was hiding under her mother's – or we believe it was her mother's hijab. Mm-hmm. And she was the only one shielding herself from the sun. So she survived. And, uh, my buddy Sky Barkley and I, we jumped out from behind the tank and started dumping, uh, rounds into the ISIS positions that are like a hundred yards away, which is basically point blank range. They're right there. And, uh, David Eubank ran out and grabbed the little girl and then ran back behind the tank. We were also able to get one of the men, uh, successfully back and we started moving back. And I talk about the third man in the book and how, um, we were not able to save him and he ultimately died. Um, but we started moving back, and then immediately, uh, as as we're as we're moving backwards, a round just came out of nowhere, just a, a burst of machine gun fire, just took my leg out from under me. And I knew, I, I knew as soon as I was hit, I knew exactly what had happened. There was no, there was no shock, there was no surprise. I mean, I was startled, yes, but there was no shock. I, I knew exactly what had happened. Because um, we were all expecting to get shot, we were all expecting. Okay, at some point, one of us is going to take gonna a round. Get shot, of,
1: yeah,
2: yeah, someone's going to eat it. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> so I got hit. I fell down behind this Iraqi army tank, which is backing up down the street, and we can't tell it to stop. And it's like literally maybe five or six feet away from me. Oh, so I'm wounded, and I, ha- I have no choice but to stand up and keep moving, because um, I knew my team would would die trying to get me out of there. I knew that, right? And so I had no choice but I got up and uh, threw a tourniquet on, and I was, and I talk about this in the book too, where I, as I'm putting the tourniquet on, I, I, I kind of stumble over the bodies of one of these little girls. Yeah. Uh, but I had her face blown off, and she was right there, like I could see her right there between my feet, as I'm throwing this tourniquet on, and I'm terrified because, you know, the, the, the smoke is dissipating, ISIS can see us. I don't know if they know that I'm hit or not, but the rounds are still coming in. Right. And um, long story short, we ended up we ended up making it back to, to Iraqi army positions. And um, so to answer the second part of your question, yeah, a few days later, I was back in sort of in our safe house in Erbil, um, one of the cities there in northern Iraq, and um, one of the guys came in from the field, uh, a journalist who was out there uh, by the name of Bernard, and uh, he showed me some of the videos. He's like, hey, man, you got to look at these videos. And so it was the videos of the rescue. And so I had spent several days and several nights in pain and just, like, re, by, basically by myself with other guys who weren't there on the rescue right. trying to replay and trying to understand what had happened. Like, where did I step? I didn't I didn't remember if I had fallen down or not after I got shot. I didn't remember. I had no idea. Um, people always say, like, oh, like, when, you're, when your adrenaline is going, everything slows down and you remember everything. Well, we were past the point of adrenaline and yeah. you're in the point of just shock and you're – now things are just starting to black out. You have no idea what happened. Yep. I don't fully remember what happened to the man who we didn't rescue. I I don't fully remember. I hope we can, hopefully one day we can see the drone footage. Um, cause the Americans were watching and did see us, did see the whole thing. But, um, anyway, so it was very interesting to sit there and watch that stuff. And I remember just sitting there watching it I was very numb. I was very numb to it all. But mm-hmm. a couple of weeks later I got home to Wisconsin and a buddy of mine, uh, a, a fellow seal of mine, he texted me and he was like, Hey buddy, uh, check it out. You're trending on Reddit. And I was like, what are you talking about? So he sent me the link and sure enough, the video of David running out and grabbing the little girl while Sky Barkley and I provided covering fire, uh, had gone, had gone viral and it was all over the place. Fox news, CNN, everyone was showing it. And, um, it was, it was very, um, it's, it, it's interesting because that was the worst day of my life in so yeah. many ways. And some of the worst moments of my life getting shot and, and, and all that stuff. And it was um, – it's, it's interesting for millions of people literally to have – literally tens of millions of people have seen this. And it's very interesting that they're sort of seeing what I went through. But I, I kind of see it as a uh, – I see it as an honor to represent yeah. the, the men and women who have gone through the same thing that I have and much worse. You know, you said your, your your late husband didn't make it home, and he's, he 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 did so much more than I ever than I he gave so much more than I ever could, and it's an honor to sort of represent the warriors who've who've gone before me and who do these things, and I'm just one small story of thousands and tens of thousands of, of brave and heroic acts that have been put out there. So that so it's kind of a bittersweet thing. It's a ter- yeah. it's terrible to relive it, but um, it's an honor to sort of represent. Um, the people who've gone before and have done the same things.
1: A couple more things I wanna get through. Some things, mm-hmm. some you know, thoughts and insight that you offer in your book. You talk about coming home and so I spent years working with veterans as a as a professional and then in the community that I've built up over the years. Like it's what I do. And so I, I hear a lot and I know a lot about PTS or PTS some people call it PTSD, some people call it PTS. You are the first person that I've ever seen break it down into the two parts that you broke it down into and for me that is something I hope that everybody reads and it just seems so clear when you when you wrote that how you separated it between what you call you know shell shock like there's the two phases like the, the first when you get back and you're Physically, you know, your body's there, but your brain needs to catch up, and it makes mm-hmm. so much sense how you describe that. Can you tell? Can you explain it in your own words rather than me just paraphrasing what you wrote?
2: Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely, book? absolutely. Well, I think you were, you were already hitting it right there in the head. Yeah. So there's, you know, people always use the term PTSD, right? right. D stands for disorder, right. and what I talk about at the end of the book is. About how when I, when you come home, there's a, there's a readjustment period, right? You you are you are spending so much time as a soldier in an environment where people are trying to kill you, and your body adapts to that. So you your senses are heightened. Yeah. You sleep, you know, your sleep you sleep a lot lighter. You know, things that may have uh, warned of danger in, in a war zone, like dogs barking, babies crying, different things like that, people screaming. You know, that was something that would have, you know, made you raise your rifle up and like get ready for a fight. And that's so when when you come home, your your body has returned home from the war, mm-hmm. but it takes it takes your mind a little bit of time, and especially if you have just spent a year over in Iraq, right? You know, like some of these uh, some of these guys have to like that's insane. And then they are supposed to come home and just everything's fine. Snap out of it, yeah. Yeah, it's not it's it's going to take some time. So I, I, my message to veterans is like, okay, that's completely normal. Okay, you're coming home, you're gonna you're gonna have headaches. It's gonna you know, you're going to sleep lightly. You're going to jump when you hear kids scream and dogs mm-hmm. bark. And if, if you hear an explosion, you're like, guess what? You're, you're probably going to hit the ground because that's what you just did for a year. And that's totally natural. That'll right. eventually kind of go away. But the other side to that is something that I don't have. I don't know the proper medical term for it. And I've talked with other veterans. And so we, we use the term moral injury
1: mm-hmm.
2: when you were morally injured overseas. This is where the, the real quote unquote PTSD comes from. This is like how, how does how does a soldier who is courageous and heroic in battle, come home and start hurting people who he loves? How does somebody who's survived so much come home and commit suicide? How is it that they're so disciplined but then all of a sudden they fall prey to drugs and alcohol? How does that happen? And it's because something called moral injury, and moral injury is something where they, on a moral level, were injured by what happened. And what I mean by that is they watched a friend die. They showed cowardice in battle and nobody knows about it. They have hatred for themselves or they have hatred for their enemy. They're angry at the enemy. They blame the enemy for the death of their friend or they blame their country or their commander or whoever for making a stupid call and sending them somewhere that they didn't want to go. And there's this damage that happens on, on, on the level of your soul that needs to be dealt with. And, and for me, what I believe it is, it, it simply comes down to it's one form of hatred or another. And there's this sort of righteous indignation that guys return with when they come home from war and it's oh the enemy they're the savages and i hate them and you want to know what yeah like when we when we face them in battle yeah we're, we're going to throw down and we're we're going to crush them mm-hmm. but if you bring that hatred of the enemy home if you bring that hatred of yourself home if you bring the hatred of your your country or your commanding officer whoever made whatever decision that they made that you know caused you problems right That is going to eat you alive because guess what? We as humans cannot handle that. You know, there's that old uh, biblical saying, you know, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Right. That doesn't mean that you can't get revenge. That doesn't mean that justice can't be served. That simply means that the spirit of vengeance itself Mm -hmm. is something that you cannot handle. You have to let God handle that. And, you know, if you don't believe in God, like bottom line, you just don't don't let yourself harbor up a bunch of hatred, because guess what? You can't handle it. It will eat you alive. And so that's that's the real problem that guys have when they come home. I've seen terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Things that I can't even I, – I I won't repeat. Stuff I didn't right. even put in the book because it's so awful and terrible. But I sleep perfectly fine at night. I'm, there's a sadness there. There's a part of you that will never mm-hmm. return from the battlefield. Um, and I talk about that in the book. Like there's a sadness that's just never going to go away. Right. Like your innocence is lost. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you can still – become a functioning part of society and move on with your life and move on with peace. I have perfect peace about everything because at the end of the day, I gave up my hatred for the enemy. And, and as corny as it sounds, when I went into battle, I made the decision that I was going to fill my heart with love for the people who were standing behind me and not with hatred for the people who stood against me. And that's an extremely important thing that yeah. I, I think can really help a lot of guys. And I've, I've so since my book came out, Oh my goodness! I've gotten I've gotten messages from so many grown men saying, Good. "Dude, I was crying when I read this. Thank you for this. This helped me. This is like, oh my goodness, it makes so much sense now. Yes, thank you. I'll work on this. You know, and that that to me is like that's why I wrote the book. I was like, boom, like that's that's what I want. And yeah, yeah. So it's it an incredible. Uh, yeah, there's there's an incredible message there at at, at the end.
0: All right, everyone, that wraps up another episode of the American Simpsons Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to Monday Rewind uh, with Ephraim Mattis. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you got any value out of it or any value out of any episodes that we've done in the past and you haven't left us a review yet, please go to iTunes, leave us a five-star written review. They're really important in helping us get these stories out there in front of more people, uh, grow our audience and get higher up there in the podcast ranking. So if you could do that, leave us a five-star review. We would really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Ephraim, uh, just head on over to americansnippets.com forward slash newsletter. It's a featured podcast episode of the week. There'll be a link there that you can use to go back and listen to the full original interview that we did. That's episode number 71. And we'll also include some links there that you can use to follow him on social and pick up his book as well, which I highly encourage you to do. Don't forget to check out our community of freedom-loving, patriotic Americans who believe in the American dream, who believe in freedom, who want to uphold the core values that this country was founded upon, who are committed to self, family, community, and country, and giving back uh, to those communities. Uh, and you can do that by going to greatamericansyndicate.com. We also have our merch and swag store over at American Snippets Apparel. We have a lot of cool patriotic shirts that I think you'll enjoy. So check that, check that out as well. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in today. We'll see you on Wednesday. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you really are.